morning. Good morning, everyone. Um, glad you're all here. Hopefully everybody has a um, order of service and a songbook. Uh, they're back there on that table. Um, just for future reference, as we're in a new building and everything, uh, there's a small room right behind this wall. If loud kids or anything need to go back there. And restrooms are, the women's is right here and the men's is down the hall. So if anybody needs that. So, well, again, good morning. If you all want to stand with me, we'll begin with the call to worship this morning. Um, on this beautiful day where we get to come together and, and worship the Lord together. And our call to worship this morning is from Psalm 34. I'll read the bold section if you'll repeat after me. Not repeat after me, sorry. If you'll read after me the, um, the non-bold section. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look on him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Amen. We're going to start this morning with a little a cappella. We're going to read, or we're going to sing rather, Holy, Holy, Holy. And I think it's just a good reminder that there's no band up here. There's no um, sound machine that you all are the instruments. You guys are the, the band. So raise your voices to the Lord as we sing. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our song shall of sin comes from the Apostle Paul, and we're reminded that in the Christian life, we never grow beyond confessing our sins. If there was a mature Christian, it was the Apostle Paul. So hear these words from him. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Please read these words with me. Almighty, Almighty God. God. 
maker of heaven and earth, we come before you this morning, humbling ourselves, aware of our sinfulness and our tendency to follow our own way. With heartfelt sorrow, we repent to turn away from all our offenses. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord, have compassion on us. And by the grace of your Holy Spirit, produce in us the fruits of holiness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You want to turn with me to Psalm number 2? We will sing, In Christ Alone. comes from the book of Galatians. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, 
to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Please join me in prayer. Father God, you are holy, and you accomplished what we could not accomplish by sending your Son, Jesus Christ, and earning heaven for us. God, I pray for this upstart, fledgling congregation. I pray that the eyes of their heart would behold the glory of Jesus Christ. God, I ask that you would strengthen them in their inner man to know the gospel, the love of Jesus, and the faithful promises of our Lord. God, I pray that you would root them and ground them in love and that they would be immovable in the love of Christ. Holy God, I also thank you for the provision that Lampstand Church has given us. Thank you for their grace. We pray for them as they search for a pastor. We pray that the right person will be put in place. We pray for uh, unity and peace in, the, in their congregation. Lord Jesus, we also pray for the government in this strange time of an election season, as well as COVID circumstances. We pray for our government and the leaders. Please give them wisdom, strength, to do the right thing. God, we pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Please join me in the Confession of Faith, Catechism question number 35. I'll say the question and we'll all say the answer together. What is effectual calling? Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ and renewing our wills, he does persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. You all can be seated. Well, good morning again. Um, again, thank you to Lampstand for allowing us to use this space and it's a huge blessing to be here out of the, even though it is a nice day to be out of the elements and to, to be with you all this morning. So if you guys want to turn with me to Acts chapter 9, if you have your copy of scripture with you, we'll be in Acts chapter 9. And we've been going through the book of Acts, um, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we've been trying to understand what is this book about? Why was it written? What was the intention of its writing? And why is it important for for us today. And we've tried to look at it through this lens, not of just mere events in history. This thing happened, these people went here and they did this, or even just moral stories about um, Paul prayed a lot, so you need to pray a lot, or Peter did this, so you need to do this, but trying to zoom out more and understand the point of the book of Acts. And we kind of get a hint in verse one of chapter Acts where Luke, who wrote Acts, says this. He says, in the Gospel of Luke, you wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Began to do and teach. And so the implication is that the book of Acts is about all that Christ continues to do and teach. And as we saw in the first couple chapters, Christ ascended into heaven at the right hand of the Father. And he poured out his spirit on the day of Pentecost. And this 
gospel is going out to the nations from Jerusalem to Judea to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And we've seen that in the book of Acts so far. And the church has grown by the Spirit of God, by the power of God. And so that's kind of where we've been going. And we've seen a lot of these big events, right? The ascension of Christ, Pentecost. And we've also seen some of these more negative events, these conflicts that have been internal sometimes within the church, sometimes externally, whether it's the council members of, the, of Jerusalem persecuting the church. And today we're going to kind of see that come to a point, and we're going to look at a very big event, not only in the book of Acts, but really in the whole New Testament. Today we're going to see this man, Saul, go from a persecutor of the church to a proclaimer of the gospel, from someone who goes around killing members of the church to planting churches later. Someone that was in every way an enemy to the gospel, now an apostle of this gospel. That's what we're going to look at today. And it can be easy for us to look at this passage and kind of separate ourselves from it a little bit. But this was a reality for these people. This was not just a story of Saul. This was a reality. He was going around persecuting the church. And we'll see his radical conversion this morning. And so it causes us to ask these difficult questions. How sovereign and gracious is God? How sovereign and gracious is God? Can he really save messed up people? And how messed up can they be? Is there, a, is there a limit to God's saving power? Even his worst enemy, can he take a wretched sinner and make them a saint? So that's what we'll look at this morning. So I'm going to read the text. We'll be in chapter 9. We'll, I'll read verses 1 through 19 if you want to follow along with me. I'll pray again, and then we'll, we'll look at the text. So follow along with me. This is Acts chapter 9. This is the word of the Lord. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly... A light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground And although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. And then we sort of change scenes here in in verse 10. It says this. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has sent in a vision a man named Ananias, come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. 
But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come before you again this morning. We pray that you would empower the proclamation of your word, that your word would go forth and that it would not return void. That seeing this radical conversion of Saul, that we would, in a sense, see the work that you've done in each of our lives and the work that you continue to do amongst your people. Would you pray? We pray that you would strengthen us by your spirit and that um, Christ would dwell in us richly this morning. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. So pretty intense story we have here, right? Uh, this crazy conversion of Saul. And hopefully some of us might be familiar with this. Um, it's a pretty popular uh, conversion story in the Bible, maybe the most popular. And so we're going to look at three things today. First, we're going to look at the setting in verses 1 and 2. We're going to look at the encounter that Saul has with the risen Lord in verses 3 through 9. And then we'll look at Saul's conversion and his commissioning in verses 10 through 19. So we pick up with Saul, right? We pick up with Saul in verse 1. It says that he is still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And so Saul is a particularly zealous person. Uh, he is zealous in this instance, instance to persecute the church. And so we see him doing that. And he's not just content with persecuting those that are in Jerusalem. He wants permission to go further and find more Christians, more people that are from the way, as we read in verse 2. And he wants to bring them and bind them and bring them to Jerusalem. And so we kind of have to understand who is Saul, right? We should ask that question. Who is this man Saul? Well, as we've been going through the book of Acts, we've seen him pop up several times. He was present at the stoning of Stephen. And at the end of chapter 7, we see all the people that stoned Stephen lay their garments at his feet, sort of as a sign of respect and um, that he approves of what happened. So we see him in chapter 7. And also at the beginning of chapter 8, we see him, it says that he was ravaging the church, that he was going around persecuting. So he's not a new character in the book of Acts. But it's important to understand his background. Paul, um, Saul, if I call him Paul this morning, just know that I'm using them sort of interchangeably. But Saul was educated as a Greek. He was a Roman citizen, and he was born um, Jewish. He was born of the tribe of Benjamin, as we find out later. And so he was, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, as we hear him say other places, that he probably had a good majority of the Old Testament memorized, probably a good portion of it memorized. And as we'll read later, that according to the law, he was a Pharisee, meaning that he followed the letter and the T of the Pharisaical law, that um, externally he was very outwardly conforming to the law of that day. And 
Later, we see him write, after this conversion, we see him write over half of the books in the New Testament, 13 of the 27. And so this man, Saul, becomes a pretty prolific writer in the New Testament and an important part of the church from here on out. So we kind of have to ask this question, why was Saul persecuting Christians? Why was Saul persecuting Christians, right? Was this just um, sort of a fancy that he had? No, it's much deeper than that. And again, it might be hard for us to understand, but in that day, the Jewish people were looking forward to their Messiah, right? They had read in the Old Testament about this Messiah that would come, this one that would bring a kingdom that would have no end. And so they're looking forward to this Messiah. And so Saul really has two objections to this Jesus man. The first objection is this, that he was hung on a tree. Deuteronomy says that anyone that is hung on a tree is cursed. And so this would have been a big issue for Saul. The Messiah could not be cursed. That was just unheard of in his mind. He, he couldn't comprehend that. And so the second objection, the first is that the Messiah could not be the cursed one. And secondly, that they were These people, as we've read in the book of Acts, they're proclaiming this message, this gospel of Christ, that he has risen from the dead and that we are to worship him. And this would have been another objection for Paul, or Saul rather, that you're worshiping a man. God is spirit, and we worship him in spirit and truth. There is only one God. This man, Jesus, whoever you guys say he is, cannot be God. So these are the two big objections to Saul and a lot of the Jewish leaders in that day. And so um, we can kind of understand why Saul is so adamant about persecuting the church. This Messiah could not be cursed and um, that we should not worship this man, Jesus. So these are his objections. So this is Saul, and this is what he is fighting to stop. And we see that in verses 1 through 2. So this is the setting. And then we come to this encounter this encounter, if you want to look with me at verse 3, it sort of changes here. So it says that Saul is on his way to Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone all around him, and a voice speaks, and we see Saul knocked off his horse, <laughs> essentially. So this light comes from heaven, a voice speaks to him, and he's, he's knocked over. And we read that in verses 4 and 5 as we read this morning. And it says this, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And we have to understand how amazing this is, right? This is a persecutor of the church, someone that has killed Christians, drugged men and women out of their homes. And the risen Lord appears to him. (laughs) And knocks him over. And this is just amazing. And not only outwardly is this amazing, but if we look, if we know the Old Testament, we can see the importance of this event. Why this is important. And specifically for those objections that we just talked about. So not only outwardly is this a magnificent, glorious event, but there's much more deeper understanding here. So it's interesting that the risen Lord appears to him. This one that was cursed on a tree is now appeared to Paul, (laughs) resurrected. And so this cursed one that was on a tree has now been resurrected. And so it is directly confronting Paul's first objection that this Messiah could not be the cursed one. Christ is showing them that 
he was raised to new life, that he was not ultimately cursed, that he was, because of his perfect life, uh, he was vindicated ultimately and resurrected from the grave. So the risen Lord appears to him. And also this language that's used, this, this idea of a voice and a light, is very much reminiscent of something we call theophanies in the Old Testament. A theophany is a, an appearance of God um, to his people before the incarnation. And so it's interesting that this light shines from heaven and this voice comes and speaks to him. This would have reminded Saul of theophanies in the Old Testament where God spoke to his people. And you can think in Saul's mind, this man is not merely a man. He is God incarnate. Thus answering the second objection, that this man could not possibly be God. He's appearing to him in a theophonic vision, really. Not a vision, but, you know, manifestation, showing that he is not just a man. He is the God-man. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's lots more that we could say about there, about the language that Jesus uses. But he is communicating to Saul both that I am the risen Lord, that death cannot hold me, and that I am God. Which is just powerful to think about. And then we move on. We see that these men hear the voice, but they do not see anyone. And then we see in Christ's words to Saul, we see that he not only confronts Saul, but he also corrects him. He says, why are you persecuting me? And it's sort of interesting. I wish we could almost take more time to talk about it. But Christ is so identifying with his people that he is basically saying, why are you persecuting me? When, talk about it, when talking about the persecution of Christians. There's such an identification with Christ and his people that Christ can use that language about this persecution. And secondly, there's this correction in the terms of blinding him. We see in verse 8 that he is blinded by this light. And so we can kind of see that this was to humble Saul, right? He was going around. He was killing Christians. He was dragging people out of their homes. He was seeking to persecute God's people. And this light shines from heaven and blinds him. And this would have been very humbling. It says that he had to be led by the hand. This man that was probably, you know, very adamant, very zealous to go out and persecute now has to be led because he's blind. And this also would have shown Saul his spiritual blindness. That before he was going around persecuting the church, persecuting the way, these people that were confessing Christ... And this would have revealed his spiritual blindness that he's sitting there in the darkness realizing this is my heart before the Lord. I was persecuting God and his people and I'm blind, not only physically, but spiritually. So we, we see this amazing encounter between Saul and the risen Christ. So we've seen the setting, we've seen this encounter and next, we'll look at the conversion and the commission of Saul in verses 10 through 19. So it sort of cuts here in verse 10. We pick up with a man named Ananias. Ananias, rather. And he's in this vision, he's told to rise and go to Saul. And we see that in verses 13 and 14, that he's told to go. And then Ananias says this. <laughs> he says, Ananias answered the Lord, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon your name. So we can see in Ananias' words a bit of hesitation, right? 
that the Lord tells him to go to this man, Saul, who is killing Christians. <laughs> go lay your hand on him. <laughs> and it's hard to kind of think of an equivalent, but this would have almost been, if maybe you li- if you lived in the Middle East, the Lord telling you to go lay your hands on the leader of ISIS, that he's a believer now, and um, trust me. I mean, that would have been sort of intimidating. It would have, it would have definitely been, um, there would be some hesitancy and some are you sure, you know, but we don't see that here. We see him just kind of make a statement and we see the patience of our Lord with Ananias. He's tender with him. He tells him, he reassures him that he is, that this Saul is a chosen instrument of God. And so he obeys, he goes, he enters the house, he lays his hands on him. And it's really powerful there in verse 17, he says, brother Saul, this man that was persecuting the church, he's calling brother. It's just Amazing to think about that. And so we see Ananias pray for him. His sight is restored. Not only physically, we see scales come off of his eyes, but spiritually. He's awakened. He's enlightened, if you will, to this gospel of Christ that he was once persecuting, but now will go proclaiming. He's filled with the Spirit, not only as a believer, but as now an apostle, as a witness to the risen Lord, which is a qualification for being an apostle. He is now commissioned to go to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles, and proclaim this message of the gospel. And so the rest of the book of Acts really is about this. It is about, we really pick up with Paul mainly now. We see him both proclaiming this message and being persecuted for it. So he goes from the one persecuting to now the one persecuted. So, That's our text this morning. So like we do every week, let's take a step back and let's not just leave with um, this insight, but let's seek to apply it to our lives. Let's seek to understand it and, and meditate on it. And so we'll look at three things before we close here. We'll look at three things. We'll look at first, behold the amazing grace of God in sovereignly saving sinners. Behold the amazing grace of God in sovereignly saving sinners. We don't see Saul on the road to Damascus um, trying to seek the Lord. He is doing the opposite. And we can ask a further question. Did Saul deserve God's grace? Did Saul deserve God's grace? And the answer is no. (laughs) The answer is no. It's actually the opposite. He had earned the opposite of God's grace he had actually earned God's judgment that he was going around persecuting God's people. And we use this word grace a lot in the church, and my fear is that we kind of become so familiar with it that, we, that it loses all meaning. And we kind of call it this sometimes. Sometimes we'll call it unmerited favor. I don't know if you've heard of this um, grace being, being defined as this unmerited favor. But grace is actually deeper and more than that. It's actually demerited favor. It's not just that we didn't deserve God's grace or that Saul didn't deserve God's grace. He was actually smacking God in the face. He was going around persecuting God's people. He was an enemy of the gospel. And so he did not deserve God's grace, but yet God gave it to him graciously. And we see that in our text today. And there's this amazing quote from a Puritan, um, Jonathan Edwards. He said, the only thing that you contributed to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. That we, we read this morning, Jason read in our confession of sin that 
that Paul later goes on to say that he's the chief of sinners, that he was the utmost of sinners. And us as Christians should, should be fully aware of this, that we should know our sin more intimately than our neighbor or even our spouse or our children or anyone, that this is ultimately us. And so anyone who thinks deeply about the Christian life or just life in general can see that something is not right. That something is not right. That God has written on our hearts and in his word that we owe both God and our neighbor love. But we don't do this, do we? We're to worship God and God alone in the way he has prescribed. We're to love our neighbor. We're not to pursue our own interests. And yet we, we do the opposite. We don't do these things. And so for us and for Paul... The solution is not to try harder, right? Paul, or Saul rather, in his life was seeking to be made right with God through the law. He was zealous, right? He was zealous for the law. He was seeking to be made right with God through the law. And so this brings us to our second point, the insufficiency of the law. The insufficiency of the law, meaning that the law cannot save. The law cannot justify And so we should feel the tension here a little bit. Paul says something later on in Romans 7. He says, the law is good. The law is holy. And so you can say, Kendall, what are you talking about? The law is holy. How is it insufficient? And so we can say that the problem is not with God's law. God's law is perfect and holy because it comes from him. It is his character written down. But the problem is not with God's law. The problem is... Is with us, and the law itself does not have power to change us. As Paul later on says in Romans 7, what's he say? When the law told me not to covet, it just made me want to covet. <laughs> when I heard the command, it made me want to go against it, sin in me, riling up. And so we can see the insufficiency of the law here. And Paul later goes on to admit this in Philippians chapter 3. He says, This I have more to boast circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But then he says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And then he says this, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. So we've seen the insufficiency of the law to save and to justify And now we'll look at the power of the gospel. What does Paul later go on to say in Romans 1.16? That the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Not of works, not by the law, but the gospel is the power of God. And so we need to ask this question. It's an important question. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? The gospel is the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. The life, death, resurrection of Christ. That even though we are sinners, that God has made full and complete pardon 
for our sins in the person and work of Christ. And like we read this morning in our assurance of pardon, Galatians 4, that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. What are those three things? Christ assumes our nature. He takes on flesh. He assumes our duties, born under the law. And he assumes our liabilities, the curses that we had earned. And so we can say with full assurance that Christ fulfilled the law, that there was no sin in him, that he fulfilled the law perfectly. But more than that, he suffered the punishment that we deserve. And he did this for us and for our salvation. And this is through faith alone. And so you might say, Kendall, how is this related? Why are you talking about this? Paul knew this. He knew that the gospel was the power of God. In his old life, he had sought to be made right with God through the law, but like a mirror, it just showed him the filth that he was filled with, and it pointed him ultimately to Christ. And so for us this morning, even though our sin is great, maybe our suffering is great, maybe we're dealing with dark, heavy sins, or maybe we feel like God is not able to save. I'm so messed up. Sometimes we think this way. I'm so messed up that God could not save me, that my sin is so great, um, it's so dark, it's so deep, God could not save me. But we see here this great conversion of the chief of sinners, Saul, who later goes on to be the Apostle Paul, saved miraculously by the sovereign work of God. So this morning, as we close, may we be reminded of our great shepherd Christ who feeds us by his word and spirit. And may we be found not in ourselves this morning, ultimately, our works, but may we be found in Christ. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for sending Christ, the power of God for salvation. That this morning, as we wrestle against our own flesh, against the world, against the devil, that we, we would be reminded of Christ's saving work to save the chief of sinners, even us. Would we humble ourselves this morning, not seeking to exalt ourselves, but seeking to exalt Christ and his powerful work by the Spirit of God this morning? Would you give us faith this morning to believe this? And out of gratitude for what you've done, may we seek to live according to your law, not to earn life, but because you have given us life. May we, out of gratitude, seek to obey you, seek to love our neighbor, seek to love you. Again, not to earn anything, but because of what you have earned for us. Would we look forward to the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells, where there is no sun, where the light of the, of the Savior is the light of the city. May we remember that today. In your name we pray. Amen. If you want to stand with me, we will sing song number seven. We'll be singing Psalm 23. This might be a new one for some of you, so just sing along as you can. We'll be singing song number seven, Psalm 23, and we'll be singing it to the tune of Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. So just think, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound.
doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy benediction this morning from Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Grace and peace as you go this morning.